Hey guys, it's Scott. It's Tuesday, August 30th, and I can't believe summer is over or almost over for those of you still clinging to the last days of, of sunshine. I have one kid who is just in his second day of 10th grade, which I can't believe. He's a real teenager. And then another kid who was desperately inside finishing all the reading he was supposed to do for school over the summer and did not do, of course. And then a three-year-old who's just like happy to be here. So... This week, we have some big stuff. First, we have Barnstormers number two out from Comixology Originals. It's co-created by the great Tula Lote, and it's a series about a guy who claims to be a World War I pilot and is now daredeviling across the country when he crashes into a wedding and winds up taking the bride with him, and the two of them have a darkly comic adventure and kind of romantic journey together across the... United States of that time. And it's set against the the roaring 20s. And the book is largely about how that moment 100 years ago has a lot of parallels to this one, especially in the, in the ways in which I think the wealthy of that time as reflected in all the kind of Gatsby era pop culture stuff that we have now, were sort of partying it up and taking it as a moment of relief after some turbulent times, both with World War I and the influenza pandemic. And instead of kind of digging in and trying to create a new social contract across the board with workers, with labor, just collectively with the country as a whole, seem to be more and more determined to isolate their wealth and take it away from the rest of the country. And I think that's sort of the context or the background of that book, even though the focus is on two young working class kids that decide they're going to kind of fly across the country and sneak into a lot of wealthy people parties and, and rob them without anyone noticing. So anyway, it's a book I'm really proud of. I hope you'll check it out. Again, like all the books this time in this second wave are creative leaps for me, I'm trying different genres, working with different creators than I've worked with before, great people, great talents, but also they're pushing different boundaries creatively for me as a writer and forcing me to be a bit more elastic and it's a real invigorating experience. So there are books that are maybe more surprising in different ways than things that I've done before, but I think are really personal and books that I'm passionate about and that speak to things that matter to me and my co-creators. So I hope you'll give it a shot. Also, we've got the um, final order cutoff coming very soon for both Noctera Val number one, which is coming out in October, and it's drawn by the great Francis Manipal, who's a dear friend. It's a special. Again, it's a number one. It's going to be collectible. We have the series over at Netflix. Things are going well. I hope you'll check it out. And then the third arc in earnest comes back in winter. Can't wait to do it. It's going to be a blast. Tony is already rocking out on it, but it's kind of like Aliens to Alien, where it's like more monsters, more trucks, <laughs> more cosmic mayhem. So we want to give them a lot of lead time to be able to just explode on the page. And then we also have Night of the Ghoul out from Dark Horse, our Comixology Originals book. It's me and Francesco Francavilla. And it's about a um, lost great horror movie from the 1930s in which the monster, the ghoul, might actually be real now and haunting the building in which the main character, Forrest Inman, has come for the night to try and interview the director of that movie who is in hospice care. So it's a, it's a double helix structure where half of it is the burned remnants of the original monster movie and done in black and white, and half of it is a modern terror narrative where 
the main character is finding out that all of the things that he thought were fictional about this movie might be real and that he's trapped in an old age home with somebody who might be far more dangerous than he thinks. So it's a lot of fun. I hope you'll check it out. I'm really proud of both of them and I'm really grateful for the support and critical acclaim when this one came out digitally. So yeah, so FOC for both of those. Tyler, if you can put them here with the order numbers, I'd hugely appreciate it. We really, really can't thank you enough for all the support. We're going to do a business class in September for paid subscribers where we really get into the mechanics of being a writer as a job. I'm really excited about this one. Everybody sort of jumped at it when I said, do you guys want to do this one last one before we start looking at your work? So what it's going to be is this is going to be the one that's all about the questions that no one wants to ask or answer in creative writing workshops because everyone is too focused on craft. And that was always something that was really frustrating to me when I took workshops. I wanted to know how much do you make? Like, what is a page rate? What is an exclusive contract? What does it mean if you have something optioned? What are ancillary rights? If you have something optioned, how long before it comes back to you? If they purchase it, do you ever get it back? Are there different kinds of deals? What does it mean if you give up 50% of your rights? What does it mean to have an agent? What does an agent do? What does an agent take? All of these kinds of questions that I feel like are crucial to understanding how you make a living as a writer, we're going to talk about. So that's going to be our September class. And then probably either the end of September or October, we'll start 102 officially. Comic Writing 102, can't wait. Really excited for it. New York Comic Con, again, we're going to do a lot of fun stuff, but the Founders tier is going to reopen for this in late September, mid to late September. After everybody in the Founders tier has a chance to send in their books, remember the deadline is September 11th, I think, so send them in now. And after you receive your first three exclusive covers and extra goodies being sent to you by Comic Sketch Art on September 2nd. So all of that will be fun. Now, I wanted to talk for a minute. I feel like I was going to say this last time, and then I got caught up in all kinds of stuff from the Yankees completely falling apart on us and my 11-year-old's like emotional breakdown over that and all kinds of end of the summer stuff like losing my passport and crazy shit like that. But I wanted to do a post because people were asking me, when do you know it's time to leave a character? Like, when do you know it's time to get off Batman, for example, for me, or stop doing a series even like American Vampire? When do you, when do you know it's time to kind of close down shop? And so for me, there are a couple levels of this. There was like Batman, then there was sort of DC as a whole with metal. There's creator owned. So I'm going to start with something like Batman. Okay. So Batman for me, when I got on Batman, Bruce Wayne in the new 52, first I was just terrified, like I've said many times. So it was really just, let me tell one story that I'm going to swing for the fence with Court of Owls. And if I get it through, I don't care if they fire me afterwards. And that's kind of the way I think most people operate when you first get on a character. And that's the way I would honestly tell you to operate is you're up at the plate, swing for the fence. Don't play small ball. Don't bunt. Don't try and get a single. You might only get this one chance. So if you see your pitch, which the book is your pitch, go for it. So anyway, took me about a year and a half to two years to even get comfortable to feel like, well, I'm not going to get fired. And then when I did Zero Year with Greg, that was the moment when I felt like we owned our version of the character. We had rebuilt him from the ground up. He was designed to be inspirational rather than intimidating. And he was meant very much as a post 9-11, 2010s Batman. It was addressing things that I think my kids were afraid of, all kinds of stuff like that. 
So it was very much ours. And then after that, you know, we did Endgame, which kind of, for me, was like the closing down of our Joker story. And then it became, well, I wanted to do something. DC was very much about, well, why don't you do either small Batman stories with different villains or try and do something again with Joker because it had done so well. Maybe you kill Joker. Dan was very much about killing the Joker. He was very much about what if you kill Batman and instead make Lincoln March the new Batman. There was a lot of stuff like that. And um, for me, it was one of those moments where I realized I had a couple more things to say with Batman. One was I wanted to show the way in which he only exists as a fictional character. That when you start to apply him in the real world in all kinds of ways or apply him to specific situations where you say this is the way Batman needs to work. He can't do this. He can only do that. He has to be this way. He falls apart. You know, what makes Batman so enduring is the fact that he's such a open, simple concept. Again, there are only a few things about Batman that really are always true. And other versions of the character can stretch him to places that I might not take him, but they start at that same core center, which is he goes out every night and tries to prevent the same thing that happened to him from happening to other kids. And he puts his life and body on the line and is the most determined to do this of any character you'll ever find. He never quits. And that's, that's kind of it. You know, everything else, whether he loses his money, has his money, whether he gets romantically involved is not, whether he decides to kill somebody or not, all that comes from that. And for me, it became, well, I wanted to do this story. And it was, a, it was a moment when I felt like Batman was getting pulled in a lot of directions in culture, in pop culture, where it was like, should he be on the side of the city or the people? Or would he believe in certain causes? Would he not believe in certain causes? All this discussion was, was nuts to me because Batman himself, he can be applied to anything in that way. And so I have my own opinions of what my version of Batman would believe and who he would side with in different ways. And those are mine. But the point is, as a construct, Batman can kind of exist as a fictional character only, like as a cipher. So we wanted to do this story super heavy. That was one of the things I was proudest of on the book, that we were able to do a story where we made him human and away from Batman and gave him a chance to live his life. And then he realizes the only way for Batman to live is for Bruce Wayne as a real human being to die and for Batman to become the legend again that he always has been. And so it's a personal story, but it's it had a different level of ambition. And then when we were done with that, I really wanted to rest on Batman and felt like we brought everything back. I had some ideas for some smaller stuff I wanted to do that felt like if I did them in the main book at that point, it might be diminishing returns. And Greg really wanted to go do some indie stuff. So it felt like staying on Batman, but working with different artists just didn't feel right. So it was like, all right, well, let me do All-Star Batman, step aside, let Tom take over, and I'll do kind of strange sort of off-kilter Batman over here. I was going to do Grindhouse Batman with Two-Face with John Romita. I had one lined up with Sean Murphy we didn't get to do, but then I did the Mr. Freeze with Jock, and then I did a whole thing that led up to metal with everybody from Camo to Tula Lote. And it was experimentation, and it was so fun because it was like that thing that Grant says about sometimes when you're finished with your main run of the character, you get some of your best ideas. And so it was about, let me do these small things, you know, that I wanted to try that wouldn't, exist under the scrutiny and the pressure of the main series where it had to sell over a hundred thousand all the time for the company to be healthy. And so after that, after we did those, and I, I really love all-star Batman. I hope you guys will check it out when you get a chance. It's definitely different 
very different than the Batman run that we did. It's trying stranger ideas and trying to tonally really shift things around and play with Batman and like push things in different directions for me and flex different muscles. And then it became time for metal, which we had had in our head for a long time. And it was like, okay, well, this is my Batman in the DC stuff. It was the leveling up to the cosmic from the grounded. And my point without sort of walking you through, if you ever want me to kind of walk you through the process of doing metal and then justice league and death metal, which are kind of a different chapter for me than just doing Batman, I'm happy to do it. But essentially like for me, Batman finished when we did all-star Everything else was more moving into being the point person writer at DC for events in that way. You know, outside of what Jeff was doing with Doomsday Clock, all that stuff. So for Batman, for me, it was when do you step off? You know, when do you step off altogether? So do I still have ideas for Batman? I, I do 100% still have. I have a lot of ideas. I have things that I wanted to do. Scarecrow was a big one. I really had an idea that I wanted to do with Penguin about class in Gotham City. I wanted to do one with the owls again. I thought about bringing them back in a different way. But I think what happens is, and this is my best advice, is the thesis of this long and rambling post. I think the, the idea is really that when you know in your gut that it's safe, that you're doing things that are less ambitious or aren't as scary to you as the things that you were doing before, it's time to leave. Like, that's really what it was, you know? Was it as scary doing All-Star Batman? No, in the way that I didn't feel the pressure. But creatively, it was definitely as scary because it was trying things I had no idea if it would work. It was Batman traveling cross-country in our first arc, chained to Two-Face with John Romita, in the daylight with chainsaws and trucks and KG Beast, and it was just nuts. Like, it was a level of zaniness and humor that prepared me for metal that I was kind of training for what I wanted to do with metal, but I didn't know would work on Batman at all. And then moving from that to the opposite end of the spectrum in All-Star and doing a much more dark story with Jock and Tula and Camo about Batman in Washington and all kinds of stuff and an end of the world kind of apocalyptic feel. And then doing the one with Raphael that I love about Alfred and Alfred's clone, which again, I can't believe they let us get away with, but I love all of that stuff to me was scary creatively. It was like, is this going to work? I have no idea, like none, but it wasn't scary pressure wise the way Batman was because I didn't need to sell huge and all that. But what I mean is when creatively you feel deep down, like you're not risking as much, you're not pushing yourself you're falling back on things that are kind of comfort food or, you know, safety net stuff, then it's time to go, you know? And I don't mean to say that as somebody in a privileged position where it's like, well, just leave a book where you're making good money. I get it. I get staying on when you're on a popular book. But creatively, I can name so many people that I feel like you see on books or still playing with characters that you're like, this is just diminishing returns. It's hurting your relationship with fans because they can see that you're not bringing your best ideas anymore or your most daring ones. You're doing it in a way that maybe pokes the bear in different ways, but isn't particularly ambitious given the things that you've already done. It's, it's kind of echoes of stuff you've done. Again, there's nobody I have in mind. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade on anyone out there right now. I think people that I know are returning to characters that they've used before, like Dan Slott. He's somebody who, when I was on Batman, I marveled at his constant reinvention of the character. So 
if he goes back to Spider-Man now, like he was saying, I'm first in line to buy that because I believe he would never do that out of love for that character without having incredible ideas. But I think in the past, you can think, I'm thinking more of people that I grew up with, you know, than people right now. But people that you know stayed on a book a while too long, people that came back, did it again, even though you were kind of like, eh, you know, last time. And and that's really what it is. It's like, if you are not scared on the character, if you're not doing something creatively daring for yourself, then that's when it's really time to leave, in my opinion. I don't know. I know it sounds like a simple answer for a long sort of diatribe about what it was like to work on something like Batman. But again, like for me, I have 10 ideas I'd love to do, but I don't want to do them right now because they're easier to do and safer to do than other things that I haven't tried yet with other characters. And they're also safer and easier to try than things that I haven't done with my own work. So it's about those two rules, you know, that I think I try and remind you guys of in class constantly, which are one, you've got to write the story you'd love to pick up and read more than any other. Like right today, would I love to pick up a scarecrow story that, you know, has some of the stuff I wanted to do with it? Yeah, I'd love to, but would it be my favorite? No. And then secondarily, you've got to be the most exciting writer to yourself at all times. That's really what it is. Like, And so that means not doing the things sometimes that would be fun and easy and safe and all that, Like, which sucks, but it's true. You know, sometimes it means doing the thing that scares you to death. But that's how, in my opinion, you create longevity as a writer. You create a fan base that trusts you to always be pushing. And above all, that you create a sense of yourself as a writer and a confidence that I think will carry you through multiple years in this industry. Once you start trying to chase former sales or popularity on a character, that stuff, most of the time it feels like it kind of falls through. So anyway, that's kind of my my two cents on it. And again, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. This is not intended to be like, this person, this person stayed too long, or this person shouldn't have done this, or like, hey, name your examples. It's more, I love your thoughts on what you think about sort of when it's time, just emotionally and psychologically, to step away and what have been some of your favorite run moments and post-run moments even when somebody has kind of found that magic after the fact, after the kind of big run that they did when they're doing stuff on the side or they're doing stuff that kind of comes in from left field and says, wow, this makes me rethink the way they approach this character altogether. All right, guys, thanks. Oh, and before I forget, a couple books to pick up. I've been loving Grimm from Boom Studios from pal Stephanie Phillips and Flaviano. It's about a woman who is a reaper and takes souls down to the afterlife and then finds herself involved in a mystery and adventure after one guy, a soul, steals her scythe. So you you must check it out. It's great. And then also a book that I've only read the first issue, but I really liked it. It's called New America. It's by Kurt Pyers, who's done a, a lot of great stuff so far, youth and a bunch of other good books. And Luca, uh, I think it's Casa Languida. And it just pictures an America that's been split by civil war. 